Chapter Thirteen of the Lamplighter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Lamplighter by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Thirteen. No caprice of mind, no passing influence of idle time, no popular show, no clamor from the crowd, can move him erring from the path of right. W. G. Sims. One Saturday evening in December. The third winter of Gertie's residence with True, Willie came in with his French books under his arm, and after the first salutations were over, exclaimed as he threw the grammar and dictionary upon the table, "Oh, Gertie! Before we begin to study, I must tell you and Uncle True the funniest thing that happened today. I have been laughing so at home as I was telling Mother about it." I heard you laugh," said Gertie. "If I had not been so busy, I should have gone into your mother's room." To hear what it was so very droll, but come, do tell us. Why you will not think it's anything like a joke when I begin, and I should not be so much amused if she hadn't been the very queerest old woman that I ever saw in my life. Old woman, you haven't told us about any old woman. But I'm going to," said Willie. You noticed how everything was covered with ice this morning, how splendidly it looked, didn't it? I declare, when the sun shone on that great elm tree in front of our shop, I thought I never saw anything so handsome in my life. But there, that's nothing to do with my old woman. Only that the sidewalks were just like everything else—a perfect glare. I know it," interrupted Gertie. "I fell down going to school. Did you?" said Willie. "Didn't you get hurt?" "No, indeed. But go on. I want to hear about your old woman." I was standing at the shop door about eleven o'clock, looking out, when I saw the strangest-looking figure that you ever imagined coming down the street. I must tell you how she was dressed. She did look so ridiculous. She had on some kind of a black silk or satin gown, made very scant, and trimmed all round with some brownish-looking lace. Black, I suppose it had been once, but it isn't now. Then she had a grey cloak of some sort of silk material. That you certainly would have said came out of the ark, if it hadn't been for a little cape of a different color that she wore outside of it, and which must have dated a generation further back. I would not undertake to describe her bonnet; only I know it was twice as big as anybody's else, and she had a figured lace veil thrown over one side that reached nearly to her feet. But her goggles were the crowner; such immense, horrid-looking things I never saw. She had a work bag made of black silk. With pieces of cloth of all the colors in the rainbow sewed onto it, zigzag, then her pocket handkerchief was pinned to her bag, and a great feather fan. Only think at this season of the year, that was pinned on somewhere by a string, I suppose, and a bundle handkerchief and a newspaper. Oh gracious, I can't think of half the things, but they were all pinned together with great brass pins and hung in a body on her left arm, all depending on the strength of the bag string. Her dress, though, wasn't the strangest thing about her. What made it too funny was to see her way of walking. She looked quite old and infirm, and it was evident she could hardly keep her footing on the ice. And yet she walked with such a smirk, such a consequential little air. Oh, Gertie, it's lucky you didn't see her. You'd have laughed from then till this time. Some poor crazy critter, wasn't she? Asked True. Oh no," said Willie. "I don't think she was." Queer enough to be sure, but not crazy. Just as she got opposite the shop door, her feet slipped, and the first thing I knew, she fell flat on the sidewalk. I rushed out, for I thought the fall might have killed the poor little thing. 
and Mr. Bray and a gentleman he was waiting upon followed me. She did appear stunned at first, but we carried her into the shop, and she came to her senses in a minute or two. Crazy, you asked if she were, Uncle True. No, not she. She's as bright as a dollar. As soon as she opened her eyes and seemed to know what she was about, she felt for her work-bag and all its appendages, counted them up to see if the number were right, and then nodded her head very satisfactorily. Mr. Bray poured out a glass of cordial and offered it to her. By this time she had got her airs and graces back again, so when he recommended to her to swallow the cordial, she retreated with a little old-fashioned curtsy and put up both hands to express her horror at the idea of such a thing. The gentleman that was standing by smiled, and advised her to take it, telling her it would do her no harm. Upon that, she turned round, made another curtsy to him, and answered in a little cracked voice, "'Can you assure me, sir, as a gentleman of candor and gallantry, that it is not an exhilarating potion?' The gentleman could hardly keep from laughing, but he told her it was nothing that would hurt her. "'Then,' said she, "'I will venture to sip the beverage.' It has a most aromatic fragrance. She seemed to like the taste, as well as the smell, for she drank every drop of it, and when she had set the glass down on the counter, she turned to me and said, Except upon this gentleman's assurance of the harmlessness of the liquid, I would not have swallowed it in your presence, my young master, if it were only for the example. I have set my seal to no temperance pledge, but I am abstemious because it becomes a lady." It is with me a matter of choice, a matter of taste. She now seemed quite restored, and talked of starting again on her walk. But it really was not safe for her to go alone on the ice, and I rather think Mr. Bray thought so, for he asked her where she was going. She told him, in her roundabout way, that she was proceeding to pass the day with Mistress Somebody that lived in the neighborhood of the common. I touched Mr. Bray's arm, and said in a low voice that if he could spare me I'd go with her. He said he shouldn't want me for an hour, so I offered her my arm, and told her I should be happy to wait upon her. You ought to have seen her then. If I had been a grown-up man, and she a young lady, she couldn't have tossed her head or giggled more. But she took my arm, and we started off. I knew Mr. Bray and the gentleman were laughing to see us. But I didn't care. I pitied the old lady, and I did not mean she should get another tumble." Every person we met stared at us, and it's no wonder they did, for we must have been a most absurd-looking couple. She not only accepted my offered crook, but clasped her hands together round it, making a complete handle of her two arms, and so she hung on with all her might. But there, I ought not to laugh at the poor thing, for she needed somebody to help her along, and I'm sure she wasn't heavy enough to tire me out, if she did make the most of herself. I wonder who she belongs to. I shouldn't think her friends would let her go about the streets so, especially such walking as it is to-day. "'What's her name?' inquired Gertie. "'Didn't you find out?' "'No,' answered Willie. "'She wouldn't tell me. I asked her, but she only said, in her little cracked voice, and here Willie began to laugh immoderately, that she was the incognito, and that it was part of a true and gallant knight to discover the name of his fair lady. "'Oh, I promise you she was a case.' "'Why, you never heard any one talk so ridiculously as she did. "'I asked her how old she was. "'Mother says that was very impolite. "'But it's the only uncivil thing I did, or said, "'as the old lady would testify herself, if she were here.' "'How old is she?' said Gertie. Sixteen. "'Why, Willie, what do you mean?' 
"'That's what she told me,' returned Willie. "'And a true and gallant knight is bound to believe his fair lady.' "'Poor body,' said True. "'She's childish.' "'No, she isn't, Uncle True,' said Willie. "'You'd think so part of the time, to hear her run on with her nonsense. "'And then the next minute she'd speak as sensibly as anybody, "'and say how much obliged she was to me for showing such a spirit of conformity "'as to be willing to put myself to so much trouble for the sake of an old woman like her. "'Just as we turned into Beacon Street, we met a whole school of girls, "'blooming beauties, handsome enough to kill.' my old lady called them, and from the instant they came in sight, she seemed to take it for granted I should try to get away from her and run after some of them. But she held on with a vengeance. It's lucky I had no idea of forsaking her, for it would have been impossible. Some of them stopped and stared at us. Of course, I didn't care how much they stared. But she seemed to think I should be terribly mortified. And when we had passed them all, she complimented me again and again on my spirit of conformity her favorite expression. Here Willie paused, quite out of breath. True clapped him upon the shoulder. "'Good boy, Willie,' said he. "'Clever boy. You always look out for the old folks, and that's right. Respect for the aged is a good thing, though your grandfather says it's very much out of fashion.' "'I don't know much about fashion, Uncle True, but I should think it was a pretty mean sort of a boy that would see an old lady get one fall on the ice and not save her from another by seeing her safe home.' "'Willie's always kind to everybody,' said Gertie. "'Willie's either a hero,' said the boy, "'or else he has got two pretty good friends. "'I rather think it's the latter. "'But come, Gertie. "'Charles the Twelfth is waiting for us, "'and we must study as much as we can to-night. "'We may not have another chance very soon. "'For Mr. Bray isn't well this evening. "'He seems threatened with a fever, "'and I promise to go back to the shop after dinner to-morrow. "'If he should be sick, I shall have plenty to do, "'without coming home at all.' "'Oh, I hope Mr. Bray is not going to have a fever,' said True and Gertie, in the same breath. "'He's such a clever man,' said True. "'He's so good to you, Willie,' added Gertie. Willie hoped not to, but his hopes gave place to his fears, when he found, on the following day, that his kind master was not able to leave his bed. The doctor pronounced his symptoms alarming. A typhoid fever set in, which in a few days terminated the life of the excellent apothecary.' The death of Mr. Bray was so sudden and dreadful a blow to Willie that he did not at first realize the important bearing the event had upon his own fortunes. The shop was closed, the widow having determined to dispose of the stock and remove into the country as soon as possible. Willie was thus left without employment, and deprived of Mr. Bray's valuable recommendation and assistance. His earnings during the past year had been very considerable, and had added essentially to the comfort of his mother and grandfather who had thus been enabled to relax the severity of their own labors. The thought of being a burden to them, even for a day, was intolerable to the independent and energetic spirit of the boy, and he earnestly set himself to work to obtain another place. He commenced by applying to the different apothecaries in the city. But none of them wanted a youth of his age, and one day was spent in fruitless inquiries. He returned home at night disappointed, but not by any means discouraged. If he could not obtain employment with an apothecary, he would do something else. But what should he do? That was the question. He had long talks with his mother about it. She felt that his talents and education entitled him to fill a position equal, certainly, to that he had already occupied, and could not endure the thought of his descending to a more menial service. 
Willie, without too much self-esteem, thought so too. He knew, indeed, that he was capable of giving satisfaction in a station which required more business talent than his situation at Mr. Bray's had ever given scope to. But if he could not obtain such a place as he desired, he would take what he could get. So he made every possible inquiry. But he had no one to speak a good word for him, and he could not expect people to feel confidence in a boy concerning whom they knew nothing. So he met with no success, and day after day returned home silent and depressed. He dreaded to meet his mother and grandfather after every fresh failure. The careworn, patient face of the former turned towards him, so hopefully that he could not bear to sadden it by the recital of any new disappointment, and his grandfather's incredulity in the possibility of his ever having anything to do again was equally tantalizing, so long as he saw no hope of convincing him to the contrary. After a week or two, Mrs. Sullivan avoided asking him any questions concerning the occurrences of the day, for her watchful eye saw how much such inquiries pained him, and therefore she waited for him to make his communications, if he had any. Sometimes nothing was said on either side of the manner in which Willie had passed his day, and many an application did he make for employment, many a mortifying rebuff did he receive, of which his mother never knew. End of chapter 13